Remain standing for the reading of God's Word this morning. Unfortunately, not where we thought we would be. Uh, I don't know if that's unfortunate, but it certainly is not according to expectation. It will be from 1 Kings chapter 19. It was last night, while in prayer and somewhat late, I decided to change the message for today to address um, a sensing imminent need for our congregation. And so I now turn to 1 Kings 19 as opposed to Matthew 2, which some of you expected us to address this morning. Beginning at verse 1, I'll read the first 21 verses of 1 Kings 19. Now hear the word of God. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I don't make your life as one of the life of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. And he said, It is enough now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food, forty days and forty nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave, and he spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, tore down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. And he said, Go out and stand in the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountain and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And so it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and says, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the edge of the sword. I alone and left, and they seek to take my life. And the Lord said to him, Go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shephat, of Abel, Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword from Haziel, Jehu, or Jehu will kill. Whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knee have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha the son of Shephat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him, And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and says, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him, and he took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen equipment and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. Our gracious Father, we ask that your Spirit would attend the preaching of your Word and empower it and send it forth for the purposes for which you design and decree and purpose. 
and bring forth a hundredfold fruit from our lives. May we take heed and have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to, to hear the Word of God this day and to act upon it and to take it to heart and to, uh, we pray the Spirit would put His finger on us corporately and individually as fathers, as wives and mothers, as husbands, as children, and as your servants and ministers and deacons and elders. Lord, we ask that your Spirit would address us this day, that we would take heed unto the Gospel, that we might see the glory of the risen Savior and live in the light of His victory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I am sensing an intensified spiritual battle against the forces of darkness that may be upon us. And if we are called unaware and unprepared, we could suffer great loss. That is not a negative statement as much as it is a warning, like Jesus says, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. Be careful for your adversary is like a roaring lion going to and fro seeking whom he may devour. Be careful because your adversary even appears as an angel of light. It's these warnings in Scripture that keeps us mindful of the spiritual battles that are true each day of our lives, that war in your soul and against your marriage, who would love to sift your children and have your grandchildren. And yet we are confident and we look into Christ knowing that He is greater, that is in us, than he that is in the world. And we know our Lord has won the war, but there are battles to be fought. Spiritual battles come in all sorts of shapes and sizes with different faces disguised differently. And if your enemy can keep you from thinking that you are even in the battle, you are already on the way to defeat. That's why people do not come to the Lord. They do not see that their souls are in danger or there's a battle going on. And so they don't realize they need a Savior to save them. But what is true for the lost is also true for Christians when they take their eyes off of the reality that is going on in the invisible world that happens in the material world through the hearts of men and fleshes itself out even sometimes in our own midst. It's oftentimes when we experience great spiritual victory in our lives that Satan and his forces are on the other side of that pinnacle waiting to intensify the battle. And the times when the battle can be the most fierce are often on the heels of great victory. Those are the times we often drop our guard We presume upon the grace of God and we coast a little bit on the the victories that we have enjoyed and those are the times where we are most vulnerable. I believe that may be where we are today. When Israel passed over the Jordan to wage their first battle for the great promised land, in the promised land. They came to the walls of Jericho that were greatly fortified and the enemy was strong and this was a secure city. And seven times they marched around it and the walls fell flat and there was a great victory that day. And it was right then that on the heels of that victory, that they were defeated at Ai. A much smaller city, not fortified, not very strong. They only sent a couple of thousand people over there to defeat the sure thing, and there they were sent to flight. 
because they had presumed upon grace. They were standing on the laurels of the victory of yesterday in order to coast into another one today. And God was showing them it's every single day you have to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me if you're going to be his disciple. The battle is new every day. The battle is fresh. And it goes on for the rest of your life. See, uh, your eternal salvation will be fleshed out in this life. And some of you may have a propensity to quit, to give up the faith, to call it and, and walk out the doors of the church. Some of you perhaps maybe have already done that in your heart, but you still may be sitting in a pew. But it is those who will endure to the end. It is those who will be saved. It is the Spirit of God that works in you to do that. And it is that which has begun in you that He will finish. And one of the evidences that you will finish and that you are saved is that you are persevering today in the battle. Jesus had warned us that we will suffer for the very cause of righteousness and for His sake and for the Word and the truth. And when those battles come, some will fall away. And that is like the the seed that fell on the, the wayside which sprang up for joy because of the Word for a season. But when the sun became hot because it had no root, it quickly melted away. And those were the people that came to Christ and yet in an appearance of a true faith, they had a synthetic faith so that as soon as... Problems came because of the very word that they received. They fell away. There are others that seem to grow up into a plant and their roots are deep and things are going well, but the cares and the riches of the world come and choke them out. And so those neither persevere, but they go the way of the world. Folks, we've just emerged from the busiest year in the life of our ministry. It's been a good year, an intense year, and we have bathed this past year in lots of prayer. We prayed for every project's success and every endeavor, and we have seen victory and victory and victory all along the road in everything for which we have prayed. God has heard. God has answered. God has looked down from heaven and smiled upon us. But I believe we are now in a place that we are vulnerable and perhaps the battle may intensify because the enemy has now got some attention focused upon us. You may not even be aware of it. There's always a battle, and that battle is always very real, and the battle is always very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. So this is a call this morning to be on guard, to be prepared, to be strong in the Lord and the armor that He has given you, and not place your confidence on what He did yesterday so that you march presumptuously to I, or AI, and know the defeat that comes on the heels of great victories. Here's Elijah. We read he confronts a woman in 1 Kings chapter 19. But let's be reminded as he comes and he then gets this threat in verse 2 from Jezebel. And then in verse 3 he runs. And in verse 4 he asks God to take his life. What has brought us up to chapter 19? We began with the first act of Elijah's ministry back in 1 Kings 17. This is when Elijah prayed for a drought. And God instructed Elijah to pray this way because God was judging His people for their apostasy. In the first scene, we see the ravens providing food for the prophet during a very desperate time. In the next scene, we see Elijah traveling to the area of Tyre and Sidon. 
which is Jezebel's homeland. And there he feeds a Canaanite woman and her son. And the woman's faith in God was so strong that she obeyed the prophet's voice to feed him what she supposed would have been her and her son's last meal. She was ready to die to follow the Word of God, and God rewarded her and kept her oil and flour from ever running out. In the midst of a great famine, God was providing for His prophet and for people of faith. In the third scene, we see Elijah raising this widow's only son which is the first resurrection of the Bible, showing Elijah's faith in God's presence in death. Elijah had crossed the political border of the Baal worship and prevailed through faith, and he now has even crossed the spiritual border of Mot, which was the death god in the Canaanite mythology, And again, he prevails in this miraculous resurrection. That's Act 1. Act 2 comes in 1 Kings chapter 18. Elijah goes and now he seeks out Ahab to confront Ahab. We find the opening scene with this conversation with Obadiah. He was a God-fearing man that had hidden a hundred of God's prophets and fed them and nourished them and kept them alive. Ahab had sent Obadiah, his servant, to go and find water in this time of famine for his war horses. And it was there that Elijah meets Obadiah and he sends Obadiah to go and get Ahab. And Obadiah, you can hear from this interaction, he says, no, I'm not going to do that. He'll kill me. Why will he kill you? Because I'm going to go tell Ahab that you're here. And you know Ahab's got a bounty on your head, and if he, he's been seeking to kill you. And what's going to happen is, I'm going to go tell him you're here, and I'm going to come back, and God's going to take you in the Spirit somewhere else, and you're not going to be here, and he's going to kill me. He said, no, I'm going to see Ahab today. So Obadiah goes. And even in the midst of having a bounty on his head by the very one that put it there, King Ahab, now he confronts this very king head to head, face to face. Not only showing great courage, but the great faith in God who is instructing and paving his way. And the second act, the second scene opens when Ahab now meets Elijah and he calls Elijah the troubler of Israel. And here we see a clash of worldviews coming to head with King Ahab, this wicked king, but identified even within the covenant community of God's people. Calling the prophet Elijah the troubler. Ahab had no faith in God's covenant blessings, neither did he have faith in God's covenant curses. He sees Elijah and not himself as the culprit of Israel's state of suffering from the drought which he prayed, but only followed the instruction of God. And what we see in this great showdown of these two worldviews was that great pinnacle of this battle that took place on Mount Carmel. You know the story well as Elijah then takes 12 stones because he is representing the nation of Israel, member of prophets, is a man chosen out from among the people to represent God to the people. He becomes the mouthpiece. And yet he's gathering up a representation now where he is going to represent the people of God in this great showdown and show that there's the God of heaven is the true God. 
He instructs Ahab to bring all of the prophets of Baal. And they get up on their mountain and they call down and they cry out and they cut themselves and they pray that their God would come down. Their God was silent and so Elijah, to add a more emphatic aspect to this whole drama being taken on Mount Carmel, pours three loads of water all over the sacrifice and in one prayer, God licks it up with the fire from heaven that brought the fear of everyone. Then he called for the 450 prophets of Baal to come and Elijah slaughtered them with the sword. And he rid the land of the prophets. He rid them of Baal for a moment and he rid them from the idolatry and the prophets of Baal. And then the third scene opens... Elijah prays for rain. For three years, the land had been in a drought. Elijah prays for rain. You know, this is given to us in the New Testament to tell us why we ought to be praying. He does not differentiate the fervent prayer of a righteous man speaking of you and speaking of you any different from the prayer of Elijah who prayed and rain stopped for three years and he prayed once again and a little cloud, just a little cloud began to emerge from the sea. And Elijah tells Ahab, you better get in your chariot and you better get behind your horse and you better head for home because your chariot's going to get stuck in the mud because rain's coming. Ahab does just that. He gets in his chariot, he whips his horse, he heads back to home to tell tell Jezebel all that has gone on. The king... Going home to cry to his wife, who was really the strong one. And there we see Elijah girding up the loins and running ahead of the horse and the chariot. And beats Ahab to his destination in the strength of the Spirit of God that had empowered him to do what he's called him to do. While Obadiah had painted the picture of Ahab as one who was to be greatly feared, Elijah dominated him. At every single point. And throughout the discourse between Ahab and Elijah, we hear Ahab only speaking once and Elijah silences him. We see Ahab doing exactly what Elijah says. Otherwise, we see him just quietly watching from the sidelines. The king was as impotent as the God he worshipped. All those victories and all that courage, all that demonstration of God's power and faith in God's covenant, we now come to a place where Jezebel threatens Elijah, and Elijah flees for his life in a moment. And comes to a place in the wilderness where he would just pray that God would take his life. We are seeing one of the great prophets of Scripture in a great spiritual struggle right on the heels of victorious victories. And it is here too that we have to take heed. In this third act that unfolds before us in chapter 19, we see Jezebel leading the demonic forces of Baal and Asherah in their war against God and His prophet. A spiritual warfare is ultimately between God and the forces of darkness 
but people are the channels through which the battles are fought. Jezebel hears of what Elijah had done, and she curses herself if she doesn't kill the prophet within 24 hours. This sends Elijah into a crisis of faith. And if you've ever been in a crisis of faith, you know that it is a spiritual difficulty and a great spiritual battle. Things appear to unravel at the seams in your spiritual life. Life is filled with doubt and fear. Trouble and discouragement are often characteristic and these troubles, sometimes there's troubles you've never faced before and now they seem overwhelming to you because the battles sometimes come in different fronts in different ways. They come from behind, they come from ahead and just know that every single enemy you face spiritually is bigger and stronger than you. And so sometimes you get your mind and your focus upon the enemy and and rather than on the God who is bigger than the enemy, you see the walls of Jericho rather than seeing the God who is about to destroy it. And then you feel like skipping over to Ai because of what great things you have just done and you fall to an enemy that was really weaker than you. See, the spiritual battle is not won in the flesh. It's not fought in a way that we can win any of that in the way that we can be ready for apart from the gospel and the power of Jesus Christ. And this battle, this spiritual battle, was very apparent to the prophet. It was not necessarily apparent to the people around the prophet battle had been raging for some time in the land. The Baal and the Asherah had gotten the upper hand in the people's lives and they had gone worshiping them and serving them. They had turned to them in some ways unaware that there was any problem going on spiritually because they had been so deceived. And so too, the spiritual battles often prevail upon us sometimes when subjects of them are least aware that anything is going on because the power of deception is a very strong enemy. So strong you don't know it because you're deceived. That is what the enemy does best. He deceives. He can appear as an angel of light. He can appear in pulpits. He can use the scripture as he did with Jesus in the wilderness. He he can deceive. So we find Elijah here fearing Jezebel. He's fearing Jezebel's oath more than trusting God's invisible presence. He finds now that he is fearful of a woman's curse. He had just faced the king of Israel, her husband, who already had a death threat upon his life and was ready to kill him when he saw him. And yet he faced him and now here's the woman. Jezebel's oath was based on the very gods that Elijah had just defeated. What's going on? He had no reason to fear her. But alas, is that not how our spiritual battles come? They show inconsistencies in our faith. They show that we are people who are still subject to fear. But fear is always the pathway to defeat. Fear is antithetical to faith. Fear of your circumstances. Fear of people. Fear of dying. Fear of anything and everything that displaces your trust in the living presence of the invisible God who is always with you. 
That kind of fear is a form of idolatry. God hates it. It's a heinous sin. Never be comfortable with fear of people. Never be comfortable with a fear of your circumstances. It is antithetical to faith, and it is a form of covetousness and idolatry. It's a form of pride. Fear is a form of pride. That kind of fear is a form of pride. Why? Because you're protecting yourself. You want to protect this ego, this self, this image, this person, this body, this physical, this mind, this spiritual. Whatever it is that you're trying to protect this is what's overruling the very glory of God for which you ought to live, for which you ought to be sick, for which you ought to die. For which you ought to be willing to go through disaster. For which you ought to be like the widow. Give your last and only meal to the Word of God. Fear and pride are the two culprits to watch out for. And when these surface, the battle gets hot. Fear and pride. Fear and pride. Fear and pride. You know what I'm talking about. It's in your home, fear and pride. You know what I'm talking about. It's in your own life, fear and pride. We all have this. The greatest prophet here had this, and he was struggling with it for a time in a crisis of his faith. Do not let it be characteristic of your life. The just shall walk by faith and not by sight. But wayward worldviews are always inconsistent. It's the very way that we often do apologetics. We show the inconsistencies of worldviews, and the only worldview that is consistent is God's worldview and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice the inconsistency before us. Verse 3, Elijah flees for his life. Verse 4, he prays that he might die. You ever been there? This chaos of this inconsistent worldview that takes us in such doubt and fear that we begin contradicting ourselves, and we're not even aware of it. That's why it's important to live in community and trust in the people that love us that can come around and show us our blind spots and our inconsistencies and, and those things that are our idols that are standing against the Lord Jesus. Elisha is so discouraged to the point in his depression is so deep that he prays that God would just take his life. It is enough, he says. And so a crisis of faith brings us into a conflict which, is, which has inconsistent worldviews that we struggle with. We know the truth and We try to cling to this, and yet our heart leads us to a practical aspect, and we take our eyes off of Jesus, and we get it on the wind and the waves, and we begin to sink. Oh, how thankful we are that Jesus, in those sinking moments, can reach out and hold us up. What was going on with Elijah? How can such a strong prophet be in such a weakened state. Because it's often on the heels of great victories that these kind of struggles and crises come. Did not Jesus warn us that we would be tested for our faith, that our service for Him would bring trials that would try us? And we should also know too that when you minister spiritually as you have so done in this past year, there is a depletion of Virtue that leaves you, that needs to be replenished, and a failure to refresh yourself spiritually after intense ministry will subject yourself to a crisis. When Jesus was ministering to the people, he would often retreat to a solitude place and he would pray to to replenish himself. replenish so I won't have to hear that at lunch
After feeding the 5,000, he retreats up into the mountain to be alone with God to pray. This was on the heels of the death of John the Baptist, and his disciples were mourning, and they retreat to get alone with God, and all these crowds of people following, and that's when he fed the 5,000. So he then went up into the mountain, he sent his disciples on the sea, and what did he do? He went to sleep. No, he had no rest. He prayed all night for his disciples. Because when he is ministering, there is spiritual power that leaves. Now, in Luke 8, it says, Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years who had spent all of her livelihood on physicians could not be healed by any came and behind and touched the border of his garment and immediately her flow of blood stopped and Jesus says who touched me when all denied it Peter and those with him says master the multitudes throng and press you and you say who touched me and Jesus said someone touched me for I perceive power going out of me When we minister spiritually to others, there is a power that goes out of us. The Bible and Peter even speaks about us being channels of grace. And when we are used as channels of grace to minister and edify others, there is a discharge that goes out of us into the lives of others, and that can be replenished, and that needs to be refreshed. And it is so through the means of grace that God has given us. But it is often in those times that we feel least likely to use those means of grace in our lives. And that's when we're most vulnerable. That's why oftentimes Mondays are called Blue Mondays for pastors. They have given and they have ministered and they have pressed. And now Monday morning comes along and there's called a Blue Monday for pastors. And this is the time when he least feels like being in the Word and in prayer and the time he needs it the most. But what I'm saying to you about pastors is the same is true for you. When we have such a big year as we have and we prayed that God would use us spiritually and He has, power goes out and it can be mentally and physically exhausting, but more than that it can be spiritually exhausting and it is. And that's the time that we are most vulnerable for a spiritual attack. So if you come back from all of your hard work of Presbyterian minister to others from all of the events of this past year, your tendency may be just to chill out and get some rest. And rest you do need. Rest you do need. But not just physical rest and mental rest. You desperately need rest for your souls. Keep in mind that all the previous events in Elijah's life led up to this crisis, including the outrunning of a chariot all the way back home. And here we are. We've run hard. We've served well. And if we don't bask in the glory of God, seeking the means He has given us to rejuvenate our souls, The battle will come, and it will be fierce, and it will come hard, and there's danger. So I'm calling us to a season of prayer and spiritual rejuvenation. Get some rest, physically. Get some rest mentally. But get some rest spiritually. In the narrative that follows, we see God sending His angel to Elijah with food to sustain him on his 40-day journey through the wilderness. Wilderness journeys are a part of the Christian life. You're going to go through wilderness journeys. These are testings of your faith. And you come out of them always stronger if you seek the Lord to get you through. And yet, even in those times of wilderness journeys where you don't sense God is with you or you sense that He's far away, He's always there sustaining you. 
He's none the further away than he ever has been. He's there. So Elijah journeys on to Horeb, and Elijah's 40 days of wilderness wandering is designed to replicate the 40 years of Israel's wandering in their wilderness, the same wilderness, sustained by heavenly food. And now twice Elijah is fed by an angel. He's also led to the same mountain at Horeb. Perhaps even the same cave that God came and revealed Himself to a distraught Moses when He caused His glory to pass by and showed Moses His backside while He hid Moses in the cleft of the rock. Now Elijah comes and we see him in the cleft of a rock. And here he encounters God who he only partly understands. God reveals Himself in this still, small voice. Elijah had assumed he was all alone in the battle, but the still, small voice relates to those 7,000 prophets who had not bowed their knees to Baal that God had preserved. And God is going to accomplish and do all of His purposes. You will face spiritual battles. You'll face wilderness journeys. But you are never alone. God is always with you. And you are never alone from others who have also not bowed their knees to Baal. And when you do serve the Lord, you remember that you are a channel of grace to others and what a blessing it is to give more so than even to receive. But you are going to have to go back and use the means of grace. You're going to have to pray. And if you don't pray, what does God say? Pray that you enter not into temptation and they slept. Pray that you enter not into temptation and they slept. Pray all now or sleep all now, He says, for the time has come. Be watchful. That word watchful is this idea of being watching out for in a prayerful way. So every time the Scripture says, watch, it's assuming that you are doing so in prayer. And in the wake of an intense ministry, you are vulnerable to spiritual attack. And you must more than ever, even against all of what you feel like doing and what you think you ought to do and all of that, you must give yourself to the spiritual replenishment of your soul in the Word and in prayer. You cannot give up the fight until God calls you home. I see men leave ministry Because the fight was too great only to find that the battle comes from a different corner of their lives. The battle will always come, no matter what your station. Whatever God's called you to, that is the place that you are the safest as you serve and minister. Whatever ministry He's given to you and empowered you with the Spirit of God, with that spiritual gift, that is the place that you ought to be serving. And as you do, that is the place of the greatest joy. But notice too, that is the place that you can be most vulnerable if you are not relying on His grace. If you take your eyes off the Lord and you see the wind and the storm around you, You will not escape the battle. You're going to have to fight. But God has given you the armor that He has given you the success. He has given you the victory in Christ. And it is the trust in Christ. He can defeat entire cities with the blow of a trumpet. He can take, and while we worship Him, defeat hundreds of thousands of the enemies who have surrounded our camp as we begin to lift up our voice and sing, Great are the mercies of the Lord, for they endure forever. 
God has ways that we don't see. And God has power that we don't understand. And yet when we take our eyes off of Him is when we're most vulnerable. We are in the fight. We are going to win the battle so long as we're trusting the Lord our God. Christ is our victory. And you and I must understand even more so how the gospel is relevant to our lives every day for the battles that we face. Spend time alone with God. Get up in your mountain, if you will, to spend time alone with God. It is more important than your sleep. I'm not depreciating sleep, but we learn from Jesus the priority is. Make Christ the priority of your life. Take time to listen to Him speaking through His Word. Take some genuine, Spirit-filled worship with God. Don't get into this trap of just reading your Bible and praying and going off to work. Reading your Bible and pray. No, genuinely worship God or you're missing the point. Worship God. That's who He seeks to save. True worshipers. James addresses a lot of this when he says, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Fear and pride, fear and pride. Draw near unto God, and he will draw near unto you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And He will lift you up. So let's be watchful. Let's be prayerful. Parents, I'm going to remind you of a vow that you took one day here when water went on the head of your child. Will you vow to pray with and for your children? Not once a year. Not once a month. But will you be characteristically in prayer with and for your children? That is a vow you took before the face of God. And better not to vow than to vow and not to pay it. Let me remind you. Parents, teach your children to pray for themselves. Teach your children what it means to be watchful of the enemy. Parents, provide quiet time for your children that they can go get alone with God. You are raising them to be warriors and you don't always bark their commands. You need to teach them to be commanders themselves and command their own spirit to say, go and get alone with God. And you need to teach your young ones to go and spend quiet time with God in prayer. You need to teach your children to fast. You need to teach your children to be watchful. Because your children are great soldiers in this battle. And God has used your children to minister spiritually in ways that we don't comprehend. Your children are also targets of the enemy. And you pray with them and you pray for them. And you teach them not only how they can use their voices to minister spiritually to others, but you teach them how to replenish their spiritual batteries so they can be all the more potent and not let the enemy get the foot in the door. Parents, that goes with you. Deacons, it goes with you. Elder, first and foremost, it goes with me as well. Let's pray. Our great Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the face of grave dangers and enemies that can trample us and sift us as wheat and do us in, that you have saved us from our enemies. You have saved us from our deceptive hearts. You have brought to light the truth that we are sinners and brought us to the the cross of Jesus 
and to His triumphant victory through the resurrection and given us Your Spirit now in which we minister and by which we are comforted, in which we are empowered. We thank You, our Heavenly Father, that we know that the war has been won and yet battles still must be fought. Protect us and our children. Let us trust in your covenantal works, in your faithfulness, in your blessings, as well as your curses. Take the warnings of Scripture and use them to strengthen our faith and to employ us in the very activity and the spiritual exercise of the armor of God to be praying always in the Spirit and to use the Gospel in our own lives as well as deliver it to others for in so doing it is both a defense and an offense. So Lord, we ask that You would preserve our ministry that You would watch watch over us that you would save us from our sins, keep us unified in the gospel, keep the enemy away, keep us from division or schism, deliver us from heresy. Lord, may we humble ourselves this day, and in so doing, let us not be fearful of what man can do, nor even our strongest enemy, but fear only our God, knowing that we have victory in Him. We have joy in Him. We have love in Him. We have peace in Him. And so, Lord, comfort us with the gospel. May these words of warning also be words of great hope. And may they spur us on to press on toward the very calling for which we have been called. Lord, work in us your spirit, applying these truths very specifically to our lives and hearts where this pastor doesn't know what's going on. Press it into our family culture and fabric and press it deeply into our congregation here. And do a great work Lord, we do not go now to Ai without stopping to seek your face after these great victories. But we humble ourselves and we ask that you would try our thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in us. See if any of us have taken of the, the things that have been dedicated to our God. See if there's anything that we need to know. And yet, Lord, there's AI in front of us that we must now go fight. So give us wisdom and grace and your spirit to do it right and to do it seeking your victory. That little by little and from glory to glory, we enjoy more of this great promised land that you have given. And we pray this in the strong and victorious name of Christ, who is our great warrior. Amen.